Hello and welcome to the February 2012 edition of the Lesbian Gay Law Notes podcast. I'm Brad Snyder, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York. And with me, as usual and as always, is Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School, the Chief Editor and Writer of Lesbian and Gay Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. How are you today, Art? Just fine, Brad. All right. How's the weather treating you? Let's not talk about the weather <laughs> okay. podcast. All right, because not everybody lives in New York, so they don't, they their don't weather care. is probably different or they don't care. All right, let's cut to the chase. The lead story in the February issue of Law Notes uh, comes to us from the Minnesota Court of Appeals, uh, and it's a, a marriage equality case. And this is a ruling in Benson v. Alverson, which revived the claims of three same-sex couples who argued that the Minnesota Defense of Marriage Act violates their rights on the, under the Minnesota state constitution. Um, this is a reversal of the lower court's ruling that had dismissed the couple's claims. Um, so tell us what's going on here a little bit that's brought us to this stage now. Okay, this requires a little bit of history. Way back, shortly after Stonewall. When, when, you, when you say history, you always really back. mean history. Yeah, this, take is, this is history. So early in the activist gay rights movement, uh, one of the things that was on all the lists that people made of demands – that they were presenting to legislatures is same-sex marriage. And uh, a few people decided to take that into their own hands and seek marriage licenses and file lawsuits, including a gay male couple in Minneapolis uh, filed a lawsuit in the case of Baker versus Nelson. And they claimed that it violated their federal constitutional rights uh, based mainly on the Supreme Court's decision from the 1960s, Loving versus Virginia, which said that the right to marry is a fundamental right and that there are equal protection issues raised when the state interferes in your choice of a marital partner. And in, in that, that case, case it was interracial, interracial marriage. Interracial right. marriage. So based on that case, uh, uh, McConnell and Baker filed their lawsuit uh, against the state of Minnesota, and the Minnesota Supreme Court said, no, there's no federal constitutional right to marriage. Uh, they petitioned the U.S. Supreme Court for review, and the U.S. Supreme Court dismissed for lack of a substantial federal constitutional question. And so Baker versus Nelson has stood as a precedent ever since 1971 for the proposition that there is no federal constitutional right to same-sex marriage. And the trial judge in this case got a motion to dismiss from the state and said, I can't imagine that the analysis under the Minnesota Constitution would be any different. Our state Supreme Court ruled way back in the early 70s that there's no constitutional right to same-sex marriage and the trial judges dismissed the case on that ground. So they go up to the Court of Appeals, and they discover what a lot of jurisdictions have discovered over the years, that state constitutions may provide more protection for individual rights than the federal constitution. And so now, all of a sudden, this case is alive again. And, and in talking about the, the Baker case, um, I guess, give us a flavor. I mean, the Supreme Court didn't really say much about its reasoning and in sort of refusing to... No, it was very, to, very dismissive. Well, the, the U.S. Supreme Court, in refusing to take the case, didn't say anything, there you go. except it didn't present a substantial federal constitutional question. What we've got to remember is that was 19, early 1970s. That was before Romer versus Evans, which creates a substantial federal constitutional question when a governmental body discriminates based on sexual orientation. And Lawrence versus Texas, which uh, says that sodomy laws, laws against gay sex, violate the uh, protection of liberty under the Due Process Clause. So now we have substantial federal constitutional issues to argue in a same-sex marriage case 
under the federal constitution, but it's not necessary to do that in this case because this case is brought only under the state constitution. Where, where the level of scrutiny is perhaps different yes. and more favorable to – Yes. In fact, the, the, the Court of Appeals makes a big deal about this. They say that unlike – the United States Supreme Court in an equal protection case. Well, you case. can make up anything and it survives. Yeah. Uh, if it's a rational basis case under federal judicial review, the court may hypothesize it. Yeah, and this, this court actually says that. They said, yeah. unlike that, where you yeah. can sort of make it up right. almost. Here, well, where the, where the court, where there's no burden on the government mm -hmm. to come forth with a justification if the court can imagine one. But uh, what we're seeing, it's, it's very interesting, and, and this gets over into the DOMA litigation around the country, the attacks on Section 3 of the Defense of Marriage Act. Courts are starting to say, well, maybe this is a rational basis case, but that has to mean something more than just some kind of speculation uh, that, uh, that when government discriminates based on a human characteristic like sexual orientation – they should at least have a plausible reason, something that isn't just sloganeering, something that actually effectuates some public well, policy. Which puts opponents of marriage equality in a, in a little bit of a box because right. some of the uh, arguments we yeah. hear may fit into that category. I, I yeah. wanted to get to uh, – I thought this was something new, but you may know better than I about uh, about whether it is something new, which is sort of an interesting twist that one of the couples in this case made, which is a – a religion-based argument uh, that we're typically, he you know, hearing these arguments cutting the other way that, right. you know, the religious opposition well, to marriage. one of these couples had a religious ceremony mm -hmm. and they said the refusal of the state to recognize the legal validity of their religious ceremony because the state doesn't allow same-sex marriage, civil same-sex marriage, they said that violates their rights to free exercise of religion or the equivalent as protected under the Minnesota Constitution. And the court said, well, just a minute. The state is not forbidding them from having a religious ceremony. It's not interfering with them. They can have any religious ceremony they want. The state doesn't care. And so they just dismissed the religious claim. I thought they sort of missed the point of the claim. Well, and it's also, I, I mean, it just sort of makes me wonder. I mean, we there's, there's so much talk about, you know, the religious opposition there's, also, there's plenty of synagogues and churches and other houses right. of worship across the country who want to and, in fact, do perform uh, same-sex marriages. So the question is sort of what about those religious right. groups who, and their, their Whose rights? religious views should prevail? And that's why we're supposed to have separation of church and state. No one's religious views prevail. Marriage is about a civil union between a couple that's recognized by the state. This is your, uh, this is apt for me to say you're preaching to the choir here. For yeah, me. possibly, um, but but not necessarily preaching the to the choir of our listeners. Well, that's true. Um, many people may be listening uh, to our podcast out of a know thine enemy spirit. So <laughs> you never know who's listening, and we we have to explain things to them. Now, there was another interesting twist in this case that I assume you're going to ask about. Well, I don't know. You're jumping ahead, and well, the, the fact what, that, what, that one of these couples have a kid. Yes, which was very important to sort of an associational uh, argument. Why don't, you, right. why don't you spell that out for us? Does the child of this couple have a protectable constitutional interest in the legal relationship of this child's parents being recognized by the state? Because a lot of rights flow from that mm -hmm. and also responsibilities in, in terms of child support and the health and welfare of the child. And so in addition to the three couples in this case – the child of one of them is also a plaintiff. Is this a new – you know, I asked about the I religion seen, argument. I, I mean, haven't this, seen this before. It seems like there's some clever Although, lawyering going on here. I mean, well, it, it certainly picks up 
on uh, some of the litigation we've had around marriage in other jurisdictions. In fact, the first full-blown trial on the issue of same-sex marriage was held in Hawaii in 1996, and all the expert testimony was about children. And the trial judge in that case, uh, the uh, Bear v. Lewin case, the trial judge in that case concluded that, in fact, denying same-sex marriage was harmful to the children being raised by same-sex couples because it deprived them of the protections that flow from legal recognition of their parents' marriage. Yeah, and some opponent's argument may be, well, you know, same-sex couples shouldn't be having children in the first place, so. But they do anyway. Well, that's right. Uh, let this me ask is the you interesting thing. The percentage of same-sex couples who have children is actually startlingly high, mm -hmm. although there was a recent report by the Williams Institute that the percentage has slightly declined in the last year or two. And I bet that has to do with the recession, just like it does with different sex couples who are less likely to have kids at a time when people are unemployed or having financial difficulties. Uh, we may have just had a sound on our podcast. Uh, that's uh, a wire. No, oh. we're, we're, we're all good. Um, I have to end with uh, two questions on this, though, Art. Um, the first is as we were preparing for uh, this publication of this month's Law Notes as well as this podcast, uh, some news came out of Washington State about some advances with respect to the possibility of marriage equality there. Right. Um, there's a whole bunch of other state developments going on, and we can't get into all of them. but. Right. In the course of the answer to this, maybe you can sort of give us a very brief idea of a few states that are in play. But is 2012 going to be the year where marriage equality happens in enough places that there's some sort of tipping point, that there's almost no going back despite all the other places that continue to have well, some draconian laws? I don't know if we reached a tipping point, but we have reached a position where it is becoming more of a legislative issue and less of a judicial issue. That, I think, is is a sort of a turning point. Uh, Inspired in part by the developments in New York last summer, the passage of the marriage equality law in New York, there's a new push in New Jersey uh, where legislation fell short uh, in the prior administration. And uh, now we have uh, majorities of Democrats in both houses of the legislature that are likely to pass a marriage bill, although it's not definite. But the governor has indicated he'll veto it. So in the long run, they're going to have to come up with veto override majorities, which may be too much to expect. But in addition, in the state of Washington, the state of Washington passed a domestic partnership law, which is sort of like the civil union laws uh, that we've seen in New Jersey and other places, giving all the state law rights of marriage, uh, but not allowing you to call it a marriage. And uh, the, uh, the governor, Christine Gregoire, had been a supporter of the domestic partnership approach she suddenly announced that she now accepts the idea that same-sex marriage is necessary for true equality, and she endorsed a bill introduced in the Washington legislature to expand to marriage. And that bill has made spectacular progress just in the last few days it, of January and beginning of February. It's passed, passed the, the Senate. Senate. Where, which is supposed to be the harder climb in the right. Senate, right? It's expected right. to pass the House. It's expected to pass the House. It passed the Senate, and there was some speculation that they barely had enough votes, 25 votes they needed. And there was all this jubilation when they announced the commitment from the 25th senator. But it passed with 28 votes. Yeah. So uh, several Republicans jumped Maybe even 29. I'm not I'm I think not it was sure. 28. Okay. Well, you're usually but, right uh, about these things. Yeah, right. Let me ask you one more. But, but in addition, Maryland. It seems very likely that marriage will pass in Maryland this year. The governor is now endorsing it. Uh, some of the legislative leaders are strong for it, but there's an additional reason. District of Columbia has same-sex marriage. Couples from Maryland have been going to D.C. to get married. Maryland wants to keep that business. 
You know, marriages generate commercial activity. Wow. And, I mean, we've heard that argument, but actually see it, particularly when you have a, such close proximity of a non-marriage equality jurisdiction uh, neighboring a marriage equality jurisdiction. Yes. You can sort of see that in starker terms. The last thing, this is ending on a potentially negative note, which is, you know, this was actually pointed out by the, the writer of the, the uh, article in this case, in, in this month's issue of Law Notes, is that um, – Minnesota is going to have a constitutional amendment on the ballot, right, in right. in November of 2012 to enshrine its DOMA essentially as a as a matter of state constitutional right. law. And I guess I'm wondering, we've had some experiences with this uh, in 2004 during that election and having some anti-gay initiatives on the ballot and some people saying it drew turn, drove turnout or swung the election and lots of competing narratives on that. But uh, this is a long way of asking, is this going to get opponents of marriage equality, this decision here reviving these claims, even going to sort of motivate these people even more to come out to the polls and, and vote in favor of the constitutional amendment? Well, short answer is yes. But, you know, there, there was a lot of debate in Minnesota about whether it was wise to bring this lawsuit. This lawsuit was not brought by public interest organizations. It was brought by three couples who found a lawyer who was willing to take their case. And um, some of the political activists in Minnesota were really, really dismayed at this development because they thought it would help to give weight to the argument that if the people of Minnesota didn't want same-sex marriage, they had to amend their constitution because the courts were likely to grant it. And uh, I think that this Minnesota Court of Appeals decision now gives the proponents of the amendment an argument. They can say, see, hmm. if, you, if you look at this opinion, although the court was very careful not to express an opinion on the merits, uh, if you look at this opinion, it makes it seem more likely that the plaintiffs are going to win. And yeah, it, there's certainly – I think reading it, you get the flavor that this court would be friendly to the, the ultimate well, question. That, that at the very least, this court would be receptive to the idea that you have to do more than just sprout slogans right. to support an existing DOMA. All right. Well, let's leave it there on marriage equality. We'll take a uh, short break, and when we return, we'll be discussing the latest case involving a graduate counseling student who raised religious objections to aspects of counseling LGBT clients. Stay with us. We're back discussing a case out of the Sixth Circuit, Ward v. Polite. Is that? Yeah. Ward v. Polite. Uh, this involves a, uh, a graduate student in counseling, um, not in counseling, but studying to become a, uh, a therapist or a social worker. Um, and she raised religious objections uh, to gay relationships. Um, she cited those, and she was expelled after she was being asked to counsel a gay client, and she asked her faculty supervisor either to refer the client to another student to work with or to permit her to begin the counseling, and then if issues turned to relationship issues and she was forced through that to potentially affirm uh, the person's homosexual lifestyle, uh, that she could refer at that point, or recusal, I guess, at that point. So this case is about pitting First Amendment rights, arguably, against the school's ability uh, to carry out its curriculum and the American Counseling Association's right to enforce its code of ethics, and that's involved in this case as well. And Art, I was wondering if you can sort of give us a sense of some of those competing narratives and some background on the doctrines that the court is evaluating in the context of this kind of case. Well, the, the issue here is, uh, is very complicated, and it's complicated even more by a case we reported on uh, last month, uh, Keaton case uh, involving a graduate counseling student at Augusta State College in Georgia with a very similar scenario. A, uh, someone is in the graduate counseling program. 
They have religious objections to same-sex relationships. Uh, counseling may include counseling about relationship issues. Yeah, that part, sorry to interrupt, is sort of – I can bet you that at some point during the counseling, relationship issues probably would emerge. They, I mean, they, they tend to come up yeah, they in, tend to... In, in counseling. And, and in order to be employed as a professional counselor, you need to graduate from one of these programs and be certified as, uh, as uh, having not only learned – the uh, the trade, as it were, of counseling, but also having uh, committed yourself to do so in accordance with the ethical principles established by the American Counseling Association, uh, American Psych- Psychological Association, because uh, no, it's the Counseling Association. Because if you don't, uh, you can be in violation of professional ethics. And if the school doesn't insist on compliance with the ethical code of the profession then the school's graduate program may lose its accreditation. And programs that aren't accredited, then all of a sudden you discover that financial aid and loans are not available. Right, and I mean, needless to say that the, you know, we don't, the Counseling Association's Code of Ethics includes, you know, broadly speaking, would not look kindly on you know, yeah. uh, counseling a, a gay cli- client or patient that um, you know, their issues relate to their, their fundamental sin, perhaps, of right. being gay and they should renounce or convert or whatever the case in, may in be. In other words, it's, it's a fundamental precept of this ethical code that the counselor is not supposed to impose his or her own personal views on the client. Uh, They're supposed to go with the client, affirm the client's views, and then figure out for the client how to get through their issues. Uh, And in the 11th Circuit case involving Ms. Jennifer Keaton down in Georgia, uh, the Court of Appeals held that the school had a right to kick her out of the program because of her unwillingness to comply with this code. And in this subsequent case of Ward, uh, which involves uh, a uh, Eastern Michigan University graduate program in counseling, it sounds very similar. Uh, once again, you have a graduate student uh, who is going to have difficult, a difficult time complying with the ethical code if she is counseling uh, a gay client who raises relationship issues. But the court found that this case was different from the prior case because in this case what she asked was that the client be referred to somebody else. And in the prior case, uh, at least this is the distinction that this court sees, in the prior case the student was eager to counsel gay people to try to change (laughs) their sexual orientation, you know, to go for conversion therapy, uh, to tell them that such relationships are bad and they should dissolve the relationship. You know, the point is that Ms. Keaton was an outspoken opponent who wanted to use the counseling position, or so the faculty concluded after discussing this issue with her, uh, that she wanted to use her counseling position in her crusade against homosexuality. Whereas Ms. Ward said, well, maybe I just shouldn't counsel Well, people. and on that point, I, you know, I think, look, everyone can agree, I think, in the, you know, I shouldn't say everyone. Does anyone agree on every, everyone agree on any one thing? Probably not. So I think you and I probably agree that it's probably a good thing that, um, you know, some some codes are in place that is designed to maybe not have people who are uh, hostile to working with gay clients in place. Um to protect members of the community. But, you know, here, in some level, it's almost – it is at least better circumstance that this person who is going to receive treatment was not paired with someone. Even if she said she could have 
done it in the comp- – I know that – look, and, and this is getting a little – yes, she – someone could say that they're going to follow the, the, the ethics codes, et cetera, et cetera. But I think this person probably would not have wanted to be paired with someone who would have to be overcoming serious reservations right. just to be able to do that. Well, it sounds, it sounds to me like Ms. Ward was being very conscientious here in saying it's not good for the client for me to counsel them because of my attitudes on these issues. Mm-hmm. And the court focused in on another aspect of the ethical code. The ethical code also provides that counselors should refer clients if they can't personally provide appropriate counseling. And that's what she did here. And that's what she did here. She asked that this particular client in the practicum, the practicum is sort of the clinical component where the graduate students in their last semester do actual counseling of live clients. And the the court said if this was a situation where there was a no-referral policy, we might have a different case. But there wasn't a Mm no-referral. They seem to have made up a no-referral policy in response to Ms. Ward's request for a referral, uh, that the client be referred elsewhere. So the court said it seems that kicking her out of the program in these circumstances is really censoring her uh, because of her religious beliefs and that this presents a serious First Amendment question and the district court shouldn't have dismissed this case. And, you know, earlier uh, I had suggested that maybe it's just a coincidence it's our second case in a row, yeah. a month in a row, involving a counseling student who raised religious objections. Is this, is this, enough others, a, is this there, a trend or is this just well, a there, – there may be others pending because uh, the Alliance Defense Fund – was on the case here oh, for the plaintiff, right. and the, the Alliance Defense Fund is busy around the country uh, bringing religious liberty cases. Are, are you saying this wasn't sort of an organic case brought by uh, No, a, this was a case involving a, a real student who was really dismissed, but the point is Alliance Defense Fund has been looking for people like this to bring these cases, and they are happy to represent them. So I wouldn't be surprised if there aren't more cases. And are we going to see more of these types of cases just because of sort of how the, the landscape is shifting in terms of – I mean this is the battle now. I mean if the battle's shifting to fighting over whether a counseling – a graduate student has the right to sort of not counsel a gay student, a uh, gay client on the basis of uh, a religious objection. I mean that seems like uh, – if that's where the debate's moving, that well, seems like an – almost like – the opponents might be losing if that's where we're headed for most well, of these I don't know. cases. This is this is a, a recurring theme these days in gay rights litigation, uh, and the idea of the conscientious objector who shouldn't have to comply with anti-discrimination rules. Well, we we're see seeing that in the context of clerks re- refusing to right. issue a, a marriage license in same we're, we're seeing We're seeing that in many contexts. So uh, this is going to be a recurring argument that the courts, eventually, the Supreme Court is going to have to address it again. Uh, the Supreme Court addressed this in the context of gay rights issues in the Boy Scouts case uh, and in the St. Patrick's Day, Boston St. Patrick's Day parade cases. They, they're talking about people who have religious objections to homosexuality and to what extent can they continue to function in a public sphere and apply exclusionary policies and is, is based distinct- on their religious or, or uh, First Amendment views. And, and is there a distinction then? I mean, we mentioned the town clerk who refuses to issue a license. I mean, that's right. a government actor, right? right. I mean, is, is there that is a ha- difference. The, the, the case is going to turn on that distinction? Well, well the reason these two counseling uh, cases raise constitutional issues is because they involve state universities in both cases. So they're bound by the 14th and First Amendments. Uh, if you have a private school, they can make whatever rules they want. And in fact, we've, we've had some cases of uh, gay students being thrown out of private religious schools, for example. And uh, generally, the courts have said, yes, private religious schools have a right to enforce their religious tenets in deciding who can participate in their programs. Interesting. Do you have anything more on that one? 
Uh, no, I think we've pretty much exhausted that. Okay, one. perfect. Um, we're going to take another break. We'll return, our final, uh, return to discuss our final case uh, out of Iowa concerning the refusal of local health department officials to place the names of both mothers of a child on a birth certificate. Uh, in this case, they were forcing them to consider a second parent adoption. We'll be back to discuss that. We're back talking about the case of Gardner v. Iowa Department of Health. Uh, this is a case in the Iowa District Court uh, for Polk County, and it's a ruling that the names of both mothers in a married same-sex couple, uh, Iowa, as many, many of you know, is a marriage equality jurisdiction, that both of their names must be placed on the birth certificate of a child who was conceived through the use of an anonymous sperm donor during the couple's marriage and that there was no need for a second parent adoption by the non-biological parent. Here, the local health department officials had informed the non-biological mother, uh, who I believe was Melissa, uh, that it would not place her name on the birth certificate unless she first went ahead with that adoption uh, and cited an Iowa statute that, broadly speaking, provided that the, quote, name of the husband would be added to the birth certificate as the, quote, father of the child. So, you know, the local health department officials saying there is no husband or father here, so we're going to have to leave this space blank and figure it out. Um, and the solution was going to be, according to the health department, that the non-biological mom would, would adopt the child, and then they'd put it on the uh, her name on the – she still wouldn't be a husband at that point, though. So why – She's what, not a husband. You, so why would that She's solve the issue from their perspective? You know, I think that, that this idea of local officials that we have to have lesbian husbands is a good It's idea. so strange. Uh, it's, but, such a formal, it's such a yeah. formalism. But Well, well let's, <laughs> let's, let's step back, and we have to look at the politics surrounding this because uh, – after the Iowa Supreme Court issued its ruling several years ago uh, stating that same-sex couples in the state of Iowa had a constitutional right to marry the Varnum decision, uh, there was a change in the political climate in Iowa. I mean, while public opinion support for same-sex marriage has certainly increased, as it, as it seems to do in every jurisdiction after same-sex marriage is established, maybe an initial dip, but then as people see that it's no big deal, more people were supportive. But the overall political climate in Iowa became more conservative. The legislature, which had been Democratic, there had been a Democratic governor, in the subsequent election, the Republicans won control of one house of the legislature and the governor's office. And so now we have a governor who says he's opposed to same-sex marriage, if the legislature would pass a bill repealing it or somehow uh, over, overcoming the current situation, he'd be in support of it. He'd be in support of a marriage amendment. We also had the, some of the judges of the, of the majority judges. being run out of town, Three right? Three judges right. of the court were denied re-election. Uh, in Iowa, the governor initially appoints, but then people have to stand for re-election. And there had not been – I think it was sort of an unprecedented situation of Certainly having – for three at one yeah, time. Yeah, for three to be uh, – who had written, you know, as part of right. the marriage equality decision were recalled essentially um, – you know. Yeah, the, the public has generally reflexively approved uh, reappointment of, of judges in most states where they have these retention elections. It's only when uh, there's some kind of hot-button issue that comes up and then frequently lots of out-of-state money from issues groups flows in. The National Organization for Marriage 
played a major role here in throwing a lot of money into advertising against these judges. And normally in these elections, there's no advertising at all. Right. And it, it's worth pointing out here, which we'll probably get to, that this this lawsuit, I mean, essentially, as you, it wouldn't be, we wouldn't be talking about it if it didn't lead to this lawsuit in terms of what was being done to the, the two women here. The couple was represented by Lambda Legal, and, right. and they ultimately brought a suit arguing that the department's refusal to list both of them uh, on the birth certificate violated various provisions of uh, Iowa law and especially the equal protection and uh, due process rights guaranteed under the Iowa Constitution. Right. And, and this all relates back to Varnum versus Bryan, the uh, Iowa Supreme Court unanimous decision. It's the only unanimous decision we've had so far in favor of same-sex marriage from a, a state high court. Interesting. And in the course of that decision, the court said basically that all Iowa statutes dealing with marriage in any way need to be interpreted consistently with this constitutional Yeah, they were pretty – this court uh, sort of makes clear that they thought the Supreme Court of Iowa was pretty clear on what was required, which was, as you mentioned, interpreting and applying uh, all the existing laws in a way that affords gays gays and lesbians full access to uh, the institution of marriage. And one of the incidents of marriage, one of the benefits is this, which we'll get to, is this, or maybe we'll get to it right now, this presumption that children born during the marriage are the the child of both of those parents. But but you see, we we have to take into account the political context because now – they apply for the marriage license, uh, or rather they apply for the birth certificate after the child is born. This child was actually conceived before they got married uh, because uh, the availability of marriage hadn't taken place yet. But the child was born which, after they were married. And which for a um, which for, heter- for heterosexual couple, you right. know, conceived or born right. during the, the course when, of marriage. When was the child born? So, exactly. Uh, so the child who's born to a married woman is presumed to be uh, the legal child of her spouse. And in this case, it was uh, it's Melissa, Heather and Heather. Ma- yeah. Melissa and Heather. So it doesn't matter what the gender of the spouse is. If you construe the existing Iowa birth certificate statute in a gender-neutral fashion. Well, and on this – but, 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 but the political uh, forces in the executive branch of the Iowa government are now hostile to same-sex marriage. So they are taking any opportunity to apply a very limited view – See, Art, I'm, I'm, I'm revealing how naive I actually am because I, until you brought this up, I, I genuinely thought that the Department of Health may have, you know, in, in good faith, read a statute that uses the word husband and just says, look, we don't, we don't know how to well, deal with this. you see, they didn't make the decision. What they did was they asked the attorney general for guidance, and the attorney general said, oh, it says husband. <laughs> and there were no husbands in this case, you see. There were no husbands in this case. And, and – I mean, it, it sounds funny, but in fact, there are no husbands well, in this case. Well, and sounds, there's a statute, and also the statute s- governs those diversity. Yeah. So you have to ask, can the statute be construed for the word husband to be a generic term for a spouse? Well, it's non-gender specific right. language. And the California Supreme Court was actually the pioneer on this uh, in uh, lesbian custody disputes and things of that sort going back now uh, – seven, eight years already, uh, the summer of 2005, they issued three important decisions in lesbian custody disputes, and they made clear that in construing the relevant California statutes, we should use gender-neutral pronouns. Where there's a he or a she, we should construe it as it could be either. Well, let me ask you this then. This may not be as readily, uh, as feasible or as likely in in a jurisdiction where marriage equality is enacted by virtue of a judicial decision. But certainly for jurisdictions that enacted legislatively, I mean, should there not be the the serious task of just 
going through the code? I mean, are we going to see these cases for as long well, as we don't clean up the books of all these places to where it says husband or wife, well, it has to say spouse? We, we, I mean, we may get particular public officials who are charged with the ministerial task of administering like birth certificates or marriage licenses or things who say, well, I'm not doing it because the statute has these gender terms in it. The, 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 there's no husband. Right. There, there is no husband. Uh, and... I mean, the approach that New York took in their marriage equality law is to have a provision in there that says that all the provisions in our statutes are supposed to be right. Except that you, right, except that you still have yeah, at the end of the day, you have someone you know at a local level, language. right, looking at something who doesn't see that it was amended and amended by subdivision X of whatever. Well, actually, the the interesting thing is the first state where we had same sex marriage in the U.S. was Massachusetts. All right, May two thousand four. So same sex couples have been getting married in Massachusetts. For a long time and now. Some of them are starting to get divorced. And and that was by virtue of a court decision. Right, right. And the legislature did not go through the statutes making amendments to clean things up. So we're still having litigation. In fact, here's a case that postdates this issue of law notes. Well, so and hold on. I'll this, sort, this sort of proves the this point, is Massachusetts. Though. Hold on. This proves right. the point. After seven years, eight years, right. and we're still we're seeing still these seeing kind it. of cases. So there's a ruling by the Massachusetts uh, Appeals Court, uh, which came out on February 2, uh, too late for inclusion you're in the like February issue of the next podcast. What if we well, wanted to talk about this? I think we may have bigger fish you're to so fry. You're so jazzed up about this. Yes, this we may is, have. You we can't have, see Art's face. He yes. loves this stuff. We, we, <laughs> we may have bigger fish to fry <laughs> okay. in the next issue. But the Massachusetts Appeals Court, here's a lesbian couple. They got married in Massachusetts. They have a kid through donor insemination. Then they're going through a divorce proceeding, and biological mom says that other mom has no legal rights to seek custody because she's not related to the child genetically or biologically. And the court said, well, that's, that's nonsense. They're married. Under Massachusetts law, they're married. A child born to a married woman is also the child of the woman's spouse. And, you know, we're going to use – there might be some stuff in the Massachusetts statutes that suggest it should be a husband, but that's not binding on us because the highest court of our state has said that same-sex couples have a right to all – and, and that, that, that seems very reasonable. And, and the I, presumption of parental status is part of the right. And 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 on that point, this court, you know, ultimately says, you know, something similar, which by virtue of this decision, uh, you got to read it in a gender neutral way. We're not right. going to make someone jump through the expense and all the extra effort and everything that's involved to have to do a second parent adoption. But then they do, and and during the course of their analysis, they go through what is, you know, a very interesting and I think thorough analysis of look, this presumption applies even when we know that the the husband may not be the genetic father. I mean, they give the example of a husband is away at war. There's no right. way he's the genetic father or we're genetic testing it. You know, the proverbial milkman's right. kid, right? Oh, hold on. So they say... Proverbial milkman. Well, proverbial or is it infamous? Yeah, it's like an the expression. Infamous, right? <laughs> the yes. infamous milkman. I have a point, though, bringing up the milkman. So the court so, goes... So now we're talking about fertile milkman, huh? <laughs> why is it the milkman? Why, why not the milkwoman? Or, or we, the postperson. Why are being, um, we being gendered I, and characterizing we, professions We are, now. but that's an expression. But hold on. Okay. There is a point to this. There was a point. I'm losing it. It's that the court goes through this analysis where it says, you know, look, this applies even when they're not genetically related, right? So you would think that they, they could not be clearer that when a same-sex couple is facing the same situation, bottom line, married, children born during the course of marriage, the two are the parents, regardless right. of gender. But then they do this weird thing at the end of the decision, and they say that it's very important that in this case – an anonymous sperm donor was president. They call it an important fact of the case 
And they say it's because the department's stated goal of naming the biological father could never have been met here because, you know, they'll never know the biological But any time a couple, a heterosexual couple has a kid, there's always a chance that the husband the husband is not the actual father and someone down the road may emerge and, and claim biological rights. And it doesn't make any difference. And it doesn't make any difference. A presumption. So why would the court at the end of this – and it's the last paragraph. They go through all this. Why are they sort of wanting to limit yeah. the scope of what right. they've just decided? Right. At the end, the trial judge limits the opinion. To and, just the facts of this case. The facts of this case uh, would suggest that if there was a known sperm donor – the analysis might be different. And or if it was two men. Right. And what all, would it be if it was two men? If it's two if men. What, one is the genetic father. They've done it through surrogacy. Yes. But but the way and, the way the birth certificate thing works is you have to bear the child physically. Right. In order for the presumption to apply. Okay. So that's that's not so the so when, the, they, when okay. they're two men it's it's a different story. Okay. Different so back story. to your but, example. but the point is uh, we don't routinely insist on genetic testing upon birth to make sure that uh, the person claiming to be the father is the father. And I think uh, out of an excess of caution, this judge ruled in as narrow a way as possible, which, you know, if you don't want to be appealed and you don't want to be reversed, you do the narrowest thing you can do. And so the judge made a decision for this couple. But in future, you know, if, if a lesbian couple decides they want a known sperm donor, maybe they even want, in some cases, lesbian couples decide they would like to have a man who is interested in the welfare of their child as well. And then, Which so they'll allow plenty contact. of couples do that. Yeah, plenty of couples do that. I, I found it weird. I'm sticking with that. I thought yes. it was unnecessary. I, I think it was unnecessary. The reasoning of the court didn't require it. That's right. And it, it in fact, subtly undercut the march of the entire decision up until right. that point. But I guess we'll leave it there. Um, we've covered the milkman. We've covered um, – right. uh, We've taken care of all ways of conceiving uh, yeah, children. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but that does go – look, uh, our community has couples through uh, – has children through a variety of different ways. and we even have couples through different ways. <laughs> okay. We've we got to leave it there then. This is okay. getting – taking a turn for the worse. We are going to take a very short break and we're going to conclude with our of note segment – uh, this is the time where we note some other notable developments or hilarious developments or anything else that strikes our fancy. Stay with us. We're back for our of note segment. Um, Art, what do you have of note? Well, one thing of note that happened uh, just recently up in Canada. Remember back in 2003, Canada's appellate court started to rule in favor of same-sex marriage claims. And by 2005, the parliament had passed a law allowing same-sex marriage after the Supreme Court said they have the authority to do it. Uh, and everything seems settled. No residency requirements and quite a few same-sex couples from outside of Canada went there to get married. Uh, there was a famous case of uh, couples who flew together from Israel to get married there and people from the United States, uh, people from England. Uh, and then all of a sudden, this dispute arose uh, in a Toronto divorce court. A lesbian couple from outside of Canada who had married there, and they don't live there. Uh, one of them was uh, of U.S. citizenship. The other was U.K. citizenship. They're living in the United States. They, they, the marriage fell apart. They wanted a divorce. And they can't get it in the U.K., and they can't get it in the U.S. because they live in jurisdictions that don't recognize their marriage. So they went back to Toronto, or at least the one who wanted the divorce, files a divorce action in Toronto, and the government opposed it on the grounds of two things, two arguments. One, they're not residents. And most states, most countries have a residency requirement for a court to have jurisdiction to end a marriage. 
But they also argued that the marriage was never valid in the first place because these people came from jurisdictions that wouldn't recognize it. And that was quite a curveball because uh, hundreds, would, perhaps thousands of couples. a lot of people in the United States. Thousands of couples around the world have Canadian same-sex marriages, which they assumed were at the very least valid in Canada. But, but Art, now let's not freak people out. The, the right. good end to the story the is. The good end to the story is as soon as the prime minister was confronted with this argument that had been made by a lowly attorney from the Justice Department, he said, oh, we don't intend to reopen the issue of marriage. You know? yes. and, and we have to remember Stephen Harper – uh, the conservative prime minister of Canada is an opponent of same-sex marriage. I mean, that was the position of his party. It was uh, the other parties that combined, actually, but, uh, but, but to form can, a coalition. We can but, now say they're going to leave the well is, enough alone. Well, Harper and his justice minister got right on the case, and they said and, – and this is the interesting development. Not only are we disavowing this argument about the marriage being void, we're going to look about getting rid of the residency requirement to get a divorce. They said, look, if Canada is going to allow same-sex couples to come in here and get married and their home countries will not allow them to get divorced, we owe them a solution to this problem. That's right. So Canada may become one of the first jurisdictions to grant divorces without any residence. In the old days when uh, most states didn't have divorce, people would go to Nevada, which had a very short residency. You'd establish residence for a few days and you could get a divorce in Nevada. Quick marriage, but, quick uh, divorce. But they're talking about you know maybe a very, very short. You have to come here and stay a few days and you can get divorced. Well, so the, I can report that Art's blood pressure uh, rose considerably on the initial news of what was going oh, on in Canada. I was freaked out. <laughs> I know people who went to Canada to get married. Of course, and, I hope they don't want to get divorced. <laughs> and it, is, it has gone back yeah. down since then. So my of note is uh, it just comes to us out of the University of Rochester in New York, uh, which is the largest employer in the Rochester metropolitan area. And they were facing a decision uh, in the wake of marriage equality uh, being passed in New York, which is that they've extended, as many companies did, um, domestic partnership benefits, uh, benefits based on being uh, domestic partners that was afforded only to um, same-sex couples. And now with the advent of marriage equality, the question was, well, what are we going to do with those? And there's been some talk about various employers potentially ending their domestic partnership benefits and making people get married to access them. And this university t- took what I think was an enlightened approach, which is to decide, actually, we're just going to extend domestic partner benefits to all couples who are domestic couples partners, whether they are opposite-sex couples or same-sex couples. And those of the, those who get married, they will get their benefits that way. So they've actually expanded the ways to get benefits, which seems like a – it seems like an enlightened approach to me. It seems and like an enlightened approach, but isn't it going to undermine traditional marriage? It, it might, and it's going to cost a ton of money. It's going to cost well, a ton of money. it's going to cost a lot more than same-sex domestic partnership <laughs> benefits do because same-sex couples are only a small percentage well, of the workforce. Well, you, can, where, you can't see it, but the sarcasm – well, you wouldn't see sarcasm, sarcasm dripping um, you know, if we were live. No, I'm being a little sarcastic yeah, about sarcastic, the, uh, right. the, uh, the extent to I which mean, one of, one of the any ways, of these issues matter. One of the ways we've been able to sell many jurisdictions on same-sex domestic partnerships is by pointing out – that gay people are a tiny percentage of the population, right. so it's it'll, not going to cost a lot. It'll be a cheap benefit. Right. Anyway. I mean, um, it's not cheap if you extend it. <laughs> <laughs> well, they did it anyway, and right. good for them. Good for um, them. So that's the conclusion They're of our radical podcast. radical egalitarians, <laughs> Brad. We have to say it. 
<laughs> I'm appalled by their radical egalitarianism. Okay. Is that a term? Um, yes. Okay. That's all the time we have for today. Um, as a reminder, it seems particularly appropriate now, the viewpoints expressed uh, on this podcast are, are our own as individuals and do not reflect the views, necessarily reflect the views of Legal, the LGBT Bar Association and Foundation of Greater New York, or of New York Law School, or what other affiliations do you have, Art, that I should anyone disclaim? Anyone else in the world. Or, a- anyone else in any the world. Any other organization that, that any of us belongs to. We have not vetted these. <laughs> Okay, with that disclaimer, uh, to read the latest issue of Law Notes, please become a member of Legal uh, or become a Law Notes subscriber by visiting us at www.le-gal.org. L-E-dash-hyphen-that's-a-hyphen-no-it's-it's-okay-le-gal.org. Uh, is that okay. okay? To read back issues, <laughs> visit the Justice Action Center of New York Law School. And this and future podcasts can be found online in iTunes or at legal.podbean.com. And your comments and questions are welcome at info at le-gal.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>